Pilot Boys in the building. Welcome to the Pilot Boys podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. I'm Mekadon here with my co-host, V. The NBA playoffs are here. Mamba mentality for life. Let's do it. Today is August 27th, 2020. Thank you guys for tuning in. I know you can be anywhere in the world, but you're here with us. On today's show, we have a very special guest, Dr. Vin Gupta. You have seen him everywhere, probably every day on TV, on MSN, CNN, and everywhere. He's an MD, MPA, public health physician, professor, and one of America's leading healthcare policy experts. We're very, very blessed to have him. We talk about a number of different topics, including his role in healthcare consulting, America's healthcare crisis, obviously COVID, how this country has handled COVID, possible treatments, what's going on with the vaccine. He even talks a little bit about gun control and climate change, and then talks about his top five artists and sports athletes of all time. Don't forget that our Patreon subscribers will get our episodes on Wednesdays at night early. Don't forget to subscribe on www.patreon.com forward slash pilot boys podcast. If you want to help keep us on air, you can donate there. And don't forget to grab some wristbands and face masks at shop.pilotboys.com. And be sure to leave us a five-star rating and comment on Apple Podcasts. Let's go. Where the Pilot Boys at? listening to the pilot boys podcast we are joined by a very special guest i mean a rock star right now md mpa public health physician professor and one of america's leading healthcare policy experts you probably see him every night pretty much on msnbc dr van gupta thanks for joining us on the pilot boys podcast thanks guys for having me it's great to be on with you thanks for coming uh, on man yeah, it's awesome. Uh, before we get to the serious stuff, I have, a, I have a quick question. It's probably funny. You know, you, you share a last name of someone else who's very famous who also happens to be Indian. And you know that makes people's heads explode when they see that. So I just wanted to ask a couple of things. One, is there any, you know, what's the most common question you get with that as it relates to Sanjay? And, and or do you have any funny stories as it relates to that? Uh, you know, the most common question I, I, I get asked is, are we related? Um, and it's, it's usually by uh, not people that share uh, the same ethnicity as, as this one and I, because they recognize, they don't recognize that, uh, you know, Gupta is a, it's a really common last name. Uh, I, I will say that uh, Sanjay is a hard guy to get a hold of, but uh, I'd love, if Sanjay, if you're listening to this, I'd love to, you know, uh, love to get a response back to, one of many emails I've sent over the years, but, um, uh, and, and so, but no, no, I mean, a great example. I feel like, I mean, dating back to when we were still, a, this one and I were still shared as, uh, a similar hallway, uh, I've seen this example for, for many years. So, yeah. and I, uh, I, I would say that what's what, what I think he does so well is he keeps a calm, neutral sort of equipoise about him and, mm-hmm in spite of what's happening and uh you know whether i'm right or wrong i i find it hard to to always stay neutral in tone so yeah because he's he's a good example to look up to definitely speaking of sharing those hallways um i think uh we, we should start with kind of your your academic background right and i think uh you and i are both big fans of our high school because it encouraged us to think right um and and actually think about what we how we wanted to impact the 
the world, looking at your academic career from Mommy Valley, we all we all knew you were brilliant then. Not as good of a basketball player, but very brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> um, you you decided you have a very very unique academic path, right? You left Mommy Valley, you went to Princeton, um, then you went on to medical school, um, then you went back, and I think you went to you went to medical school at Columbia, I believe, and then you went back and you got an international policy degree at Cambridge, and then an MPA from Harvard. It seems like on the surface, it's like this guy's just getting a bunch of degrees, right? But when you think deeper and look at what you're doing now, it seems like it was very, very well thought out. Could you take us into that path and like how you decided and structured your academic career to put yourself in the position that you're in now? Yeah, no, I mean, this one, thanks for the the question. And I, I feel like I'm in a position now where I'm trying to give advice to, to pre-medical students or, you know, people coming up and I, whatever small amount of success I, I may or may not have had trying to, you know, pay it forward. Uh, and I, and I asked that question a lot, you know, what I realized is, you know, one, I, I didn't have necessarily, I, it, it might seem like it was well strategized now prospectively when you're looking kind of, you know, when you're looking back at it, um, at the time I, I was just doing what seemed right and seemed interesting and trying to be intellectually curious. What I realized was, uh, and I say this to people, uh, that, that ask me for advice is, you know, be naked with yourself when it comes to what you want to do. And, 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 and even if it's like, you want to be secretary of state one day, or you want to be a U.S. Senator, you want to be CEO of a company, acknowledge it and don't be embarrassed to, to, to articulate it. I mean, of course you have to be nuanced and and how open you are with your ambitions when you're coming up, but keep that, keep a clear eyed vision and try to be as try to direct yourself as in a straight line path to that goal as you can. For me, I actually think it's been quite circuitous. Uh, What I did in, in those, in that academic path was I think the one thing that I felt like, I did right was identify gaps that I saw with existing health policy leaders. So, you know, you, you talk to a health policy leader right now, they're e- either usually an academic that sometimes struggles with making their empirical findings or research findings real to the, to, you know, to Joe public, because there's that gap in communication. Uh, you, you talk to a health policy leader that's an elected official many of whom I, I really admire, a mentor of mine, Tom Daschle, former Senate Majority Leader. What he lacks is, you know, in some ways, and he'll be the first to acknowledge this, is he doesn't really have any grounding in clinical medicine. And, and so there's that, to me, there's that gap out there that uh, the health policy leader who can communicate, who understands uh, the nuances of diplomacy, who actually has been on the front lines and can speak with some authenticity when it comes to, for example, COVID. Um, cause the thing I hate, and I'm sure, um, from what I've gathered, at least from, from others is, you know, we're tired of armchair experts that, um, mm-hmm. are on zoom calls all day thinking that they know how to treat COVID or what's the best situ- solution to this pandemic. And so one thing I've tried to lean on recognizing that, you know, whatever mini platform I have is privileged is really leaning in on wh- why, why do I have this platform and, and trying to make that real for people so that they don't 
view me with skepticism. There, there's a there's a healthy major, uh, minority of people, I would hope, that are going to push back on anything I say because you know they listen to the president. And if I'm citing scientific fact, it's viewed that I'm being partisan, even though I don't try to be. But uh, you know, to answer your question directly, the academic path that I took was not planned. I, um, but when I look back. I'm thankful for those experiences and for taking extra time. It took 15 years from, (laughs) you know, post-college to where I am now, um, you know, not making a ton of money, um, really saddling myself with, uh, you know, increased debt, frankly, uh, distant military. And and, and I feel like that cross-sectoral experience has allowed me to speak with some degree of authenticity on these issues. So that's that's the piece there that I – that I treasure about it, but obviously some opportunity costs with taking more time. Definitely. Definitely. And one question I had for you is, is, you know, obviously the, the talk of the world right now is COVID and it's so interesting because, you know, it depending on who you talk to, you know, even from the leaders, sometimes you're going to get kind of a different answer um, about what they think about it, about where they think, gets going, so on and so forth. And I think one of the things that has bothered me kind of about as I've like navigated watching the media through this process is I feel like there hasn't been good messaging, right? And so I think that, mm-hmm. but one of the things that is also clear to me, just because I have family members who are physicians is that this thing is changing. This is a new thing. It's a pandemic. It's not something that we've seen before. So of course the data is, you know, things are gonna change as the data comes in. Tell, from your perspective, what are some of the, like, I guess, frustrating things that you've seen in terms of messaging um, to kind of the American people? And, think, you know, if, if you could say one thing to, 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 you know, put people at at ease or to give people kind of just a better perspective of how to think about COVID, uh, what would you say? It, it, gosh, I, uh, Mecca, I wish I could. Um, such a. That's such an important question, but it's something I could speak for for hours on. I, at at the at the highest level, I would say that there is what scientific fact, whether it's on masking or the right type of testing or expectation setting for the American public on how long this is going to take. And every day, there's not going to be some sort of uh, dramatic new headline that's going to suggest we're turning the tide. The lack of consistent messaging on all three has made it difficult for me and my colleagues, you know, when I put on my clinical hat to do our job, to convince people that um, our greatest asset here is public cooperation. And, and so the president, you know, speaking, it's hard to mince words here. The president has not done himself any favors, in in my opinion, not, not trying to be partisan, but, Mm -hmm. you know, this notion that, that, we're his adversaries versus we could have been his allies and that the quickest way to restarting the economy was actually just doubling down on stringent health-based policies up front. You know, if had he done that, had he listened to the Fauci's uh, of the world up front in February, in March, when they weren't constrained and they weren't trying to temper their, their advice, I think he'd be in a much different place electorally, and uh, I'm sure he rues some of his decisions. Maybe he doesn't. I, I don't know. But for example, the lack of a national lockdown, you know, mm-hmm. up in up in March. If, if we really want to cite what Wuhan did or what Lombardi did as as an example of that was the ideal approach. So let's be clear: there's been 50 different approaches in the United States across 50 mm-hmm. different states, and. Mm-hmm. 
that's why we have what we have. I mean, it's an embarrassment that we are not able to do this. I have colleagues across the world in public health and they look at what we did and, you know, few of them actually say, uh, uh, envy uh, um, America as it is, you know, this yeah. notion of American exceptionalism, I think is elusive now. Uh, and, and our response to this pandemic is, is proof positive of that. So it's one, the lack of consistency and approach, even if, a governor has to implement a strategy or a mayor has to enforce a strategy at the at the municipal level. If you have the president basically enabling bad actors to not do what's right for their people, then of course a governor DeSantis is going to do something that's utterly idiotic, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, you shut down for three weeks. And if you look at open table, uh, their data suggests people were indoor dining in Florida by the first week of May and they didn't shut down until till the middle of April, they shut down essentially sort of Perry shut down for three weeks for, for, and then he was boasting that all his, all the public health experts on TV are, you know, just pundits. They don't know what they're talking about. And, you know, he's overseeing now to this day, still one of the top uh, states that's being afflicted by the, by the virus. So that's one Two, the masking debate, you know, just yet two days ago, started the DNC, the DNC is virtual. And at the same time, the president's in Wisconsin overseeing a rally where no one's masking in addition to him. And yet, you know, Joe Biden is in Delaware and the entire DNC is being held virtually. It's just the, the, the contrast in imaging and optics. You know, a lot of this is about public health communication. Mm-hmm. And a Fauci or Burks can only do so much. I can only do so much on whatever small pedestal I have to push back against the podium of the presidency. And, uh, and, and so that on masking, that's particularly frustrating because we know that if there was broad adoption, 95% in public across the country, that this could, uh, the transmission would be tamped down significantly. And so the fact that this has even been, become politicized, you know, we've talked endlessly about this, but that is, I mean, it's, it's, it's malpractice, you know, and it's, if, if the if the purview of any governor or any elected official is to do right by their people, you know, you can look at across the country and say there's a lot of people who've just had dereliction of duty, who've engaged yeah. in willfully. Mm-hmm. And why why are they entitled to the to finish their term? They should be recalled. And uh, Governor DeSantis, for example, Governor Kemp, who actually uh, you may have seen sued, uh, countersued or I think initiated the suit against uh Mayor Bottoms in Atlanta mm-hmm. for her efforts to implement a mandatory mask policy in the city of Seattle or the city of Atlanta, rather. Um, I mean, it's insanity. It's insanity. Let me ask this, what, me ask this as, as a follow up to, to the mask thing. I actually have two, two follow ups to that. The first one is with regard to masks. Personally, I've been wearing a mask since the first week of March, and it always made sense to me. It always made sense to me as something that could be helpful and you know part part of it like i said is i have physicians in my family but also it just made sense to me but there was some kind of mixed messaging happening about masks around that time and, and you know some people have said it's because they didn't want pe- regular people buying up the, uh, the n95 masks and so on and so forth but it didn't seem as though kind of the mask thing was being pushed as hard as it probably should have been early on Go ahead, and it came specifically from the cdc which is which is part of the i guess the confusion and issue yeah no and uh, you know I, I have to say um i i think the cdc i, I don't know who's heading their comms but 
man, they, they even up until la- through last week, they have issued confusing statement after confusing statement yeah. on whether it's immunity or masking, what have you. You know, on masking, I, I agree with you 100 percent. The, the literature was uncertain back in February, March. And I, I even said, you know, we don't know that there's not mm-hmm. strong evidence one way or the other in February, March about masking and its ability to tamp down infection because the studies hadn't been done. It wasn't a sexy topic to study. Now there's right. a litany of pre-published or peer, peer-reviewed studies that suggest masking is essential. And there's a reason why Hong Kong uh, and all these mega cities in Asia, Thailand, Vietnam, these major countries, a puddle jump from Wuhan, that are that tend to adopt masks in public by just by force of habit over years why they haven't been afflicted by this virus and we think mm-hmm. it's because they're you know hate to use this term but they're mask wearing societies and they're okay with it uh and, and so as we've learned uh we've tried to counter message but this notion that because there was scientific uncertainty and that was communicated and mm-hmm. now we have the humility to uh, you know, some of us to acknowledge that right. we've learned and now this is what we need to do. If you want to not get COVID or continue to live this life that we're all leading, I'm not sure that that's, that's a wrong thing. But the problem here is, um, again, it's willful mixed messaging. It's almost intentional subverting of, uh, of, of an effort to say, yes, it may have been this case in February for very understandable reasons, mm-hmm. but this is why it is now. But you have the Surgeon General putting out little uh, haikus on Twitter, uh, 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 <laughs> diminishing the right. the importance of COVID relative to flu. You have the president to this day uh, refusing to wear a mask. You have Vice President Pence going to the Mayo Clinic. I mean, I, I say this is a pulmonologist putting that hat on. He's going to Mayo Clinic, one of the most prestigious institutions, uh, higher uh, institutions of medicine in the world, surrounded by public health officials, healthcare professionals in masks, and he's the only one that's not wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. So, and what is he doing? What he's basically saying, well, we don't, uh, it, what, he, what they're doing is they're propagating this uncertainty, even though then they're saying, well, you know, if you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. They know what they're doing. They're actually really, I, I, I think the president and the vice president get, get, get charactered as being uh, um, not intelligent. I actually think they know what they're doing often and they're willfully doing it and it's it's pernicious and so that's why that's why we've had i don't the initial uncertainty was it it is what it is when it comes to Mm -hmm. the uncertainty and that's okay Uh, but but i think we had humble leaders that clearly communicated that yes there's uncertainty i don't think the american people would be uh, would 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 mind hearing we don't know the words we don't know it's okay to say but how you say it is uh is, is important yeah, and I, and I think also we we talk about Trump often. We talk about the presidency, but I think also there's a there's a degradation of our culture that seems to be happening as well that they're a reflection of, right? Which is we don't believe in expertise, right? Like I know what I'm what I'm good at and what I know. Megan knows what he knows. You know what you know. I'm gonna. In your area of expertise, I'm going to trust you before I trust myself. As a clinician, you probably see this too. How troubling is that from from a perspective of, like you said, the armchair physicians where everyone is, based on whatever their self-interest is, is developing a position around that. 
And it seems like there's evidence to support almost any of these mm-hmm. crazy positions out here mm-hmm. that they can find mm-hmm. and lean on. Yeah, no, I, 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 this one, I think it's a really important point that you, that you raised. I, I mean, I find it maddening and, and I would love to, I, you know, I would love to go on Fox and take on some of this nonsense uh, directly, but I, um, of the people that have a platform, probably 99.9% of the people that have a platform, either elected officials or otherwise, in my personal opinion, don't deserve it. And uh, and that goes for the majority of our elected officials because the way our politics works has enabled a media industry around it that that reinforces – uh, many of its worst instincts uh, are political worst instincts, you know, uh, on both sides of the aisle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not just saying that this is one, uh, one side is problem. I think predominantly it's a problem on one side. And I think we both know which side that is, but it's uh, because of who we elect, because of our, the structural problems in our political systems, money and politics, term limits, we have generally speaking, old white men in positions of power that, will then bequeath that position to another white male problem in many cases, because especially in, in areas of the country that have disproportionate influence in the electorate. And, uh, and do, do I, so we don't have a representative democracy. We have a democracy that's controlled by money and, and, and sort of the old ways of power. You get rid of money in politics, you get rid of term limits, you make it merit based. Oh man, you're going to get a ton of primaries where it's just mm-hmm. merit on merit mm-hmm. going up against the old guard, and you'll see what happens. You're going to see a bunch of people get removed from office, and I think appropriately so. And then once you get the right representatives, you're going to have a media establishment that is going to have to change to changing incentives because you know then there isn't going to be people that are going to feed into this sort of false, all these false narratives. There's not going to be a tolerance of that. There's not going to be uh, people in Congress using the media for the wrong purposes and vice versa. It it all starts with who we elect. And unfortunately, I I think we're just not given good choices and it creates sort of these downstream events where we're having talking heads on media, just like, uh, you know, emphasizing points that we shouldn't even be talking about, but we do because we have the wrong people holding power. And so mm-hmm. that's the proximal problem, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's the, you know, one thing that is crazy too right now, it, it, particularly for someone in your position. And I just, I, maybe it's like a, like a plumber or something with a, with a faucet that's, that's has a hole in it. Right. And, and if the person that called you, you know, two weeks ago, you could have fixed it and it would been no problems, but since they didn't, it's going to continue leaking. And now you have to figure out, okay, how am I going to deal with this leak? And it's, it's, it seems like a lot of the healthcare professionals now, a lot of the things that they would have advised you, like you said, like a national shutdown, you know, the type of things that are mandatory to actually stomp this type of thing out. We've already missed that boat and that boat is probably not coming again in this country. So now we actually have to deal with the data as it is now and the circumstances as they are now. How, how difficult is that basically trying to come up with policy or, uh, you know, any type of advice, knowing that we've already kind of missed that boat and this, this faucet is, is, is leaking. It's, uh, I mean, Mecca, it's, 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 it's impossibly difficult. And, you know, part of the reason why is, and I think we have to give, we have to acknowledge this is that a lot of I mean, people are experiencing 
really terrible economic times. Unemployment's an all-time, I mean, in terms of like just month over month, we haven't seen unemployment rates increase this, uh, this dramatically for my lifetime. You know, this, is, this is worse than the Great Recession. And, and yet, here I am and here are others of my elk saying we need, we actually need a national shutdown. And then right. you say that to somebody, they're like, what the hell? Uh, yeah. uh, what's all, what's six months of sacrifice been? And the, and, the, and the truth there, and this is this is why leadership matters. We just had the wrong type of shutdown. And w- w- if we had done eight to twelve weeks up front, early on, when things were not looking good, it would have been we would have gone the way of Europe and many parts of Asia. Yes, we would have had some pockets uh, uh, pop up again, but then hopefully we would have had a smart testing plan in place by then. So we could contact trace right now. Part of the reason why testing is terrible in the States is that every part of the country still needs a lot of tests and we mm-hmm. don't have the right test up front here. I, I don't know if this is, I think this is just podcast form, but if it's not, and people are actually looking at the video, something that I'm helping to vet for, for, for organizations uh, across the country is this rapid point of care testing. And it's, it's the type of testing we need. We talk so much about more tests, more tests, Truth is, tests have declined to 650,000 tests a day from 950 about two weeks ago. Part of the reason why is people just are, are sick of it. Nobody yeah, wants to get a test anymore because it's useless. If, yeah, you, if yeah. you don't get a test with result within 24 to 48 hours, what good is it? Mm-hmm. And, and so, but we continue to have strains because we haven't, you know, the UK, Italy, South Korea, these places that had terrible spikes right around the time we did, they don't need to test now the basically a huge proportion of their population persistently for months and months and months and months because they, they were able to manage things to some to variable degrees of effectiveness, but certainly better than us. And, and so the fact yeah. that we continue to have these problems, there's little I'm worried more than I was in March because public patience to hear we need a shutdown is at an all time low. Yeah. Public yeah. Uh, trust, broad public trust, the type of trust that we need. And I'm not saying 40, 60 percent, the 90 percent trust level that we need mm-hmm. in science is just not there because we have the president and his surrogates undermining it. And so. Uh, we should be worried uh, so with yeah. schools opening up with organizations moving ahead for, I mean, ma- you know, whether it's professional sports leagues to public schools, we're reopening up and we're reopening up. I think arguably at the worst time with low public cooperation, low public uh, tolerance for what it's going to take, understandably so. And then uh, uh, the flu season on the horizon. So I think there's a lot of things to be concerned about as we move into this phase uh, over the next few months. One other area with this that's that's talked about a lot in media is a vaccine, right? There are many vaccines being developed. Anyone who understands vaccines knows the challenge with developing a vaccine and the timetable, oftentimes being decades. Where do we stand? Two questions on this. Where do we stand with vaccines? And then the second thing is this kind of anti-vax culture that's rapidly increasing in the U.S. and specifically being being spread out into minority communities. What are the challenges? Where are we at with the vaccine? And how do we kind of solve this kind of anti-vax culture that's developing in our country? You know, I'm really glad you asked that, uh, this one. Um, 
I, I looking at the data, uh, I, I don't know how anybody uh, that's credible could look at the data and then message and say that we're going to have a vaccine that's broadly effective by Q4 or Q1, uh, by Q4 of 2020 or Q1 2021. It's just, it's just the data is not there. There's no way to do a trial safely. And oh, by the way, the trial that's being done on one of the leading contenders is an AstraZeneca University of Oxford study that's being done out in the UK. And they're enrolling, get this, they're enrolling nine out of 10 enrollees into that study, that phase three trial, the trial that we need to understand if their candidate vaccine is broadly effective. Nine out of 10 of their enrollees are Caucasian. And yet we know that black and brown communities disproportionately bear the effects, the ill effects of COVID-19. So how does that make any sense? So we don't have the right type of ethnic diversity in these vaccine trials. There's no way we're gonna get the type of safety data that we need uh, in a way that's gonna convince people, yes, give me this shot of that mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. by the end of uh, this year. You know, And so what, what we've seen are bad actors, like the Russians put out this, these headlines saying, hey, they, they're mass producing uh, uh, this dose of the vaccine. I don't know anybody that's excited to get the Russian vaccine. But you know what I do know is the Russian vaccine is going to cause people to uh, pause and hesitate once an American-approved vaccine is on the market. Because now people are saying, "Is there? Any, can we trust anything here? Are we actually going to harm ourselves?" So the anti-vaxxer movement has been strengthened because this has become all political. And now people don't trust the process. They think the FDA is gonna cut corners. I have to say, I'm worried about what that, that vaccine is gonna look like because mm. this is unprecedented, one. Number two, if we don't get this right, people are gonna get a false sense of security that they are, if they haven't already been exposed, that a vaccine will protect them. So it, it's, it's, the, it's the double dilemma here. We're taking something that's complicated that requires respect, scientific respect, it requires humility. And we're being really, some of us, the Russians and others are being brash with it. It's gonna cause, I, I worry, much more harm. Once we do have a candidate vaccine, it's gonna cause a lot of people to say, you know what, no thanks. Mm-hmm. It's gonna cause some people to say no thanks to a flu vaccine, which we're desperately trying to convince people to get because the, God forbid there is a double pandemic of flu and COVID-19. But all this has done is cause people and anti-vaxxers in particular to strengthen their foothold in broader in the broader debate about should you or should you not get vaccinated? And that's really unfortunate. So it's interesting because th- this is, you know, I don't want to say it's all doom and gloom, but it, it feels that way in a way, because all of the things that you would think that you would need to do or have in place to kind of stamp out a pandemic, you know, like you said, shutdown, masking, buy-in, testing, now the vaccine situation, it seems like at at all of those stages, there are major issues with all of those stages. And to me, looking forward and just as a non-medical expert, I say, we're screwed. Like, we're screwed, and and not just nationally, internationally, but definitely nationally. And I just don't know how to feel. So I guess my question is, is there anything positive that's happening that we can look at, that we can say, I know this new saliva direct test is being amped up in the media. I'm not sure if that's worthy or not, but is there anything positive that we can look at that we could say, you know, all right, just take a step back and breathe. There's going to be carnage, but we can get through this thing. 
Becca, absolutely. Uh, I didn't want to lead with this because I uh, I want people to remain vigilant and alert, at least to the extent that people will listen to me. Um, yeah. I think so. And just talking to the slide of direct folks, excuse me. They, as you know, worked with the NBA and the NBA is proof positive that using a spit saliva sample to test for COVID-19, something that there's been a lot of lack of clarity on, is saliva actually a good test to, to screen for, for the presence or absence of COVID-19? Not cl- There's not clarity. There still isn't enough clarity. But the NBA, the bubble in Orlando, has actually done pretty remarkably well here. And that's yeah. used saliva sampling as its primary testing modality. And so I was just on a call with NBA officials recently and, and and the scientists out of Yale and that was their argument. Listen, it's not a perfect test, but look at what we're doing in Orlando. So I think that is absolutely cause for optimism that maybe this testing bottleneck that we've gotten nauseated by hearing about every single day for the last six months, there, there might be relief because it's an open source platform, meaning if there's no proprietary technology, the Yale folks are not looking to to, to profit off of this. This is just common knowledge. Any lab can run it. Uh, so, so, so that's really uh, a breath of fresh air to hear because there's a lot of there's a lot of companies out there that are looking to profit off the pandemic, mm-hmm. and uh, and this particular technology is meant to be broadly utilized, not just in the United States but across the world. So, so I think that's exciting. Number two, I would say for your listeners, there's a there's some encouragement that in spite of the carnage in Texas and Florida, elsewhere, Georgia, because of poor leadership, you haven't seen the spikes. That second wave or that sort of mini wave happen in places like New York City as they reopen. They're actually thinking about opening up New York City public schools. Mm-hmm. And there is a sense here, and you may have seen the headlines, that there's actually greater progress towards this concept of herd immunity in places that were really hit hard. So the Londons of the world, the New York cities of the world that were, that were bore the brunt of the March, April wave, that maybe antibody testing, which is so antibodies is one way that we develop immunity towards a virus or bacteria. But there's a different mechanism that we don't talk often about because it's a little complicated and just confuses people. But it's, it's, some, it's something called T cell mediated immunity. So it's a different type of cell in the body that fights off viruses. It's actually the type of cell that's depleted in the setting of the HIV infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we think there's studies out of Sweden, actually, that suggest that even if you are antibody negative, but had documented confirmed COVID from a PCR test, that you have evidence of this v- different type of immunity, this T cell immunity. So that's great news because then well, that tells us, okay, maybe we actually have, we're underestimating the number of people that have been exposed and have durable immunity for a period of time to COVID-19. And maybe that's why New York City hasn't experienced the second wave or the second mini wave that we would have anticipated because all these other places across the, our, our country are, uh, that, that are really dense are experiencing these sort of mini second waves. Yeah, and and one other one quick follow up to that too is, um, you mentioned, you know, kind of not leading with certain things because you want people to stay vigilant, and that seems that as though it's like something that's been, I mean, really really important in this time period. Like we talked about 
messaging. And sometimes people will mistake that for you being uh, a fear monger or, you know, pushing fear and all this type of stuff. But it appears that if you, you, because of how serious the situation is, you can't really let up off the gas too much because people are very much influenced by the messaging. And it's very unique. And this, this pandemic is unique. I guess every pandemic is unique where you actually really do need buy-in from the people. So this must be a, a difficult time because I know people probably call you a fear monger. I'm sure that happens. That happens to me. If I ever mentioned anything about the pandemic, you're pushing fear, you're pushing fear. But it's like, no, this is actually something that affects us all. And so a, a question about kind of that, right, buy-in, you know, and as it relates to kind of sports and reopening things, you know, and, and even waivers. And some of this is technical legal stuff, but, you know, people want to say, oh, open everything up. The players are, you know, these young players, they're healthy. You know, they're not going to catch it. Why, you know, why are we, you know, it's for older people or people with pre pre-existing conditions, all this stuff. But what's unique about this that's different from like even CTE or even or a broken leg is that even if you are going to be healthy, one person catching it is a disaster because of how contagious it is and they could take it back and spread it to somebody else. What, when you look, when you evaluate kind of reopening, uh, uh, particularly with schools and sports from that perspective, uh, where, what type of advice are you giving to people? Especially, especially people who can't afford to do the NBA bubble or don't have the logistics set up to do the NBA type bubble. Yeah, I mean, Mecca, you're touching on a really important point here. I, I, I guess I'll, I'll, before getting into schools and sports, I'll just say uh, on the fear mongering piece, you know, on Twitter and elsewhere, I'll, I'll certainly get uh, the occasional comment to that effect that, uh, you know, somehow I'm profiting or the medical legal, uh, the medical establishment is somehow profiting off of continued fear mongering on COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, and nothing could be further from the truth. COVID has actually decimated hospitals. It's caused a lot of people. My wife's a pediatrician. She's had to scale back her practice. Her MAs have been furloughed and then laid off. Uh, this has really decimated uh, brick and mortar hospital systems. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so this notion that somehow uh, we're we're doing great is uh, it couldn't be further from the truth. But again, that's there, there's bad actors out there who like to propagate that we have perverse in, uh, incentives here. Uh, I just I don't listen to it. I just I try to tell it how it is. Uh, and yeah. I think we need people to be uh, not I want to say the pit bull for Fauci, but we need surrogates that are strong that can amplify and say what we think Fauci probably wants to say directly, but do it ourselves. And so uh, that's uh, the role I've, I've tried to help amplify or, or, or exercise rather. Right. So your on schools and sports, this is tough because what you don't want is a situation that's happening across the country actively where you have elite private schools and able to do things and afford things like rapid testing or plexiglass between uh, student desks that are mm -hmm. many feet apart because they just have a ton more space than an inner uh, school district that's public in the middle of Chicago, downtown Chicago or New York City. You don't want to create haves and have nots, but of course we are because we have a president and an administration who says, if you don't reopen schools, the money per student can go with the parent and the parent can take it wherever the heck they want. That is a threat that school districts that need that funding will be defunded if they don't open up in a testing constrained and a PPE constrained environment. There's a lot of nuances to what it's saying, but it's again, it's pernicious. It's a, th it's a, a threat. 
that you will your school district will be defunded. And oh, by the way, we're not going to give you any of the necessary subsidies you need to get rapid testing for your teachers mm-hmm. and custodial staff, what have you. So what we're doing is we're creating haves and have nots. And the president and his administration are propagating that reality. Major League Sports. I, for one, love that we have the NBA playoffs and we have distractions now. But um, if you ask, if you, if you ask parents across the country, uh, you know we're in the middle of a pandemic. People are suffering. People have lost their jobs. Why is it that the NBA can and MLS and all these companies are able to co-opt lab-based infrastructure that's precious? to test their players and families every single day. And we, you know, some other people, healthcare workers, other essential staff, teachers, custodial staff, grocery store workers can barely get a test. Yeah. Yeah. That is the ethical dilemma here. So even though they can afford it, at the end of the day, it's about supply constraints, right? And so there's there's a con here. There's the mental health benefit of, God, we need something. We can't, we, we can't just keep watching ESPN Classic. But uh, mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're in the middle of a pandemic and these things take a year to two years to normalize. And I get that we haven't, the last event, I remember this, um, leaving Maumee Valley actually, uh, my first day in college was 9-11, 45 minutes south of New York City. But that was a focal localized event and most of the world continued on, even though mm-hmm. the next 15, 16 years were based, defined by the global war on terror. Uh, this is much longer it's brought the world to a standstill. And I think it's going to be the defining event for many generations for the next decade plus to come, at least. Because uh, then we also don't know when the next pandemic's going to happen. I mean, mm-hmm. in the last 10 years, how many pseudo pandemics have basically occurred? H1N1? Yeah. Zika, Ebola? Uh, it's, it's almost never ending here. So uh, uh, my concern here is not just about how do we get out of this one, but how do we prevent the next epidemic from becoming a pandemic and bringing us yet again to our knees? Yeah, one one other area I wanted to talk about is you spend a lot of time and invest a lot into actual healthcare policy, right? And before this pandemic hit, um, it seems very clear that we were already in a healthcare crisis in the United States. Where do you think we stand with that? How has COVID kind of accelerated that? And what do you think are the major challenges that we can fix and need to fix um, immediately through COVID and at a macro level with our healthcare system because we have capacity issues, we have insurance issues, we have so many issues that we keep kind of kicking the kicking down the road that I'm scared that if we don't address, we are gonna be in a really, really, really big problem. I mean, this one, you no know, truer words have been spoken. Uh, this is unearthed. I, I, COVID has, has shown that if you don't have access to durable health, primary health care, uh, and that means even up until May, that it actually meant you don't have access to primary health care, that you don't even have access to a telemedicine provider to get a test, that those individuals do worse from this, from, from this virus, that any pre-existing condition untreated leads to a much worse outcome from COVID-19. So what do we do? When it comes to just basic common sense, everybody needs to have access to basic primary health care. And I think we're going to see it's going to be easier to finance that. So if the big debate here was the cost of it, 
Well, one, we know that having a pandemic where people die just costs greatly more than just making sure everybody is healthy and well and might be able to fight off the next pandemic better. So it, it, it's cost effective to cover everybody, but it's gonna be easier to do so because now people are more willing to consume healthcare in the tele-environment. By definition, they want virtual healthcare because they don't wanna go into a clinic where everybody else is potentially coughing. So people are gonna be much more mindful of how they consume healthcare and are more open to the idea of, okay, I can do it you know, via Zoom potentially, or via a different type of uh, tele-platforms. Tele I think the idea of getting to universal basic primary cover healthcare coverage will be easier because we have different options that we didn't previously have because the American people are willing to explore different venues as a result of this pandemic. That's one. Two, we need to make the legislative landscape that has changed pretty dramatically to the credit of CMS in, in the last few months with respect to telemedicine permanent. So there's a lot of changes that were made. Governor Cuomo, for example, removed out-of-state licensing requirements for, for physicians and other providers to come in and immediately help New York City in their, in their time of need. We need to, there to be less paperwork that causes needless expenses and waste in, 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 in healthcare so that physicians and other healthcare providers can just can travel across state lines very easily, can be licensed across states. We need uh, the, the legislative landscape on telemedicine to become permanent. What, what do I mean by that? I mean that we need a physician sitting here in Seattle to be able to provide telemedicine care to an, uh, a senior citizen in Florida. Because we have healthcare uh, cadre, we have gaps in, health, in the healthcare workforce across the country. But if we think about making some of these changes, out-of-state licensure requirements, mm -hmm. telemedicine, progressive policies on telemedicine permanent, that can help really make sure that everybody is provided care, regardless of whether it's a doc in California providing care to somebody in New York uh, in a virtual way. So uh, that's that's important. And then broadly speaking, pandemic preparedness. I'm hoping that we reinvest in preparedness. What does that mean? That means the national strategic stockpile. Both of you guys should know, if, if, if you don't already, that we uh, all of our essential medications get get uh, mass produced in China and India, and then get sent over here. Penicillin has been produced in the United States since 2004. Mm. And we, how often do we stoke a potential war with the Chinese? It's, it's, if, and they have an ace, they have an ace under the table there. If they wanted to, they could say, we're not gonna give you any more essential medication. So we need to develop supply chain independence on essential medications and other pharmacotherapeutics. We need to not rely on KN95s mass produced in China as for PPE purposes. So we need to be able to say, okay, if there's another pandemic, we have a stockpile of ready, non-expired, high quality masks for healthcare providers, for teachers, et cetera, that's not coming from overseas. We haven't vetted the quality of those masks, we know that we have PPE that we can trust at scale. It was a big, big issue early in March that we had PPE that just was not of high quality coming out of places like China that had not been vetted. So we need supply chain independence on medications, on essential medical equipment. And then I think we also need to th think really broadly about two more things, a pipeline for diagnostics. We lack public-private partnerships 
we lack a BARDA, a, 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 the Biomedical Research Defense Agency, as part of the U.S. government that's adequately funded to think very progressively and long term on issues like a diagnostics pipeline so that we have rapid point of care tests that are actively being developed that can be co-opted uh, and, and, and minimally modified when the next COVID 2022 uh, or 2023 arises mm-hmm. that we can, that we have people thinking about okay how do we do get something that's quick that's accurate that can be changed based on the genetic sequence of the next virus quickly so that we can get it out there uh, and, and mass produce it so we don't have a testing crisis again that we have a vaccine platform that's uh, that's agile and that can also be uh, that can also be altered quickly based on changing realities on what we're seeing in the microbial ecosystem. This is what we need. We just don't have the right people. We don't have the right funding. Uh, but if we get those in place, I think that at least we'll be able to mitigate the impact of the next epidemic of pandemic of pandemic potential. And I, wanted and to know, ask, I wanted to ask one follow-up on that um, real quick since you mentioned it. We're also, the CDC and the World Health Organization are under fire, right? And their funding has been been cut um, by us. Could you just underline the importance of those two edu- two institutions and why we need to fund them and make sure that they have the resources from America that they need. And simultaneously, and also I want you to t- speak on a little bit of some of the criticisms as well, because I don't, you know, they, they've done some, both of them have done yeah. things throughout this that I, that I, I question and I'm not even a physician. So. Yeah. <clears throat> and we're talking about the, uh, the WHO. Yes. And yeah. the CDC. It seems like the funding has been um, been cut yeah, from those organizations. Yeah, there was, I know Trump was threatening to cut the funding from from the WHO. I'm not sure if that actually went through. Um, there, are, the people have been very critical of them, but also a lot of people say, "But no, we we need the World Health Organization." How, let's talk. I guess let's just take one at a time. Let's start with the World Health Organization. What is your kind of feeling about them? How they've handled this, and what their value is, their greater value is to kind of the world. You know, I, I'd be the first to say that the World Health Organization is not what we, we need it to be. But if we didn't have it, we'd have to invent it. And so disbanding it, making these broad proclamations that we're going to defund it is, is the exact opposite. It's just all political optics and, and, mm-hmm. show, and showmanship on the part of the president. It's not going to meaningful. It's, it's all it's going to do is to make us unsafe because we need the World Health Organization, which is still viewed as credible. <clears throat> across 195 countries worldwide, all of its member states, they still adhere to a lot of its doctrines. The World Health Organization has an ability to convene people in ways that we cannot because we've lost a lot of global political capital. So uh, us going out and saying the things we've said, uh, continuing to, you know, the truth here is that we've been defunding something called the Contingency Funding Fund for Emergencies uh, since the Trump administration came into office. It, this is a, it's called CFE. If, you, if your listeners Google it, they'll find that our contribution to the fund that, that allows the WHO to respond to emergencies before they become full-blown pandemics is zero, was zero has been zero dollars for the last three years. Wow. And so this notion that we're blaming them now for not being adequately responsive uh we're to blame for that it's not their fault 
we are the, if, if we want to, to to lead the world in terms of setting the, the rules of engagement for these multilaterals in terms of uh, dictating what the WTO, the World Trade Organization, does and does not do to the benefit of our economic growth, uh, then we have an outsized responsibility to fund and, and make sure uh, uh, resources like the CFE for the WHO are adequately resourced. You know, we can't just pick and choose how we, uh, how we choose to engage with the world. We need to uh, own the responsibility that, um, that comes with uh, our place, our, our, our pole positioning when it comes to economic growth and just what people look up to uh, when it comes to America and this ideal of us. So the WHO needs to be funded uh, and, and the president has deeply harmed global cooperation. And, and there's, this, there's no notion of, of blocking off America. I mean, it, it, this, this, this ridiculous conception that we can just stop flights from coming in from China and therefore that was going to be the policy that was going to protect us, you know, the, actually it's been proven uh, by the Council on Foreign Relations, they did a really wonderful analysis, that countries that didn't impose blockades on travel versus those that did, the countries that stopped banned flights early on, like the United States, actually ha had vastly worse outbreaks than those that didn't didn't institute those travel bans not saying that at some point it makes it doesn't make it, that it, stopping global commerce and travel um, isn't a smart idea but that's not the backbone of a pandemic response strategy mm. but the president continues to message on that as though that's the sign of effective leadership that's not that is not the sign of effective leadership and pandemics ultimately find a way is the point and then if you stop global uh, commerce, if you stop global travel, you actually stop the supply of essential technical expertise and, and needed supplies like we just talked about. Hmm. Asia Pacific supplies came to a halt in February th th through the end of April. And you know what came to a halt with that? Essential medications to us, essential PPE to us. So there, there are consequences here about saying we're going to we're going we're to engage with a tit for tat on global global travel bans. They, are, they don't work. They're not the, the backbone of effective leadership. And all they do is harm uh, a broader strategy here. But the WHO, to your point, critically important. We need it well-resourced, well-managed, and, and, and that's the tip of the spear, and, and whether we like it or not. The CDC, the, yeah, sorry. Go, 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 no, definitely, no, go ahead. I think the CDC, uh, last week they issued this really confusing set of gui uh, uh, guidelines here on uh, you may have seen this notion that if you tested positive for COVID-19, that you're arguably immune for the next three months is basically it was the upshot of this headline. And all of us looked at that, at the actual guidelines they posted on the website. It was maybe three lines, no, no reference, no cited material. And we were like, what the heck are they doing? These are, these are res supposedly respected public health officials putting something out there that doesn't have any cited information. And the reason why they didn't, they didn't cite anything is because this area is still yet to be determined. What does immunity look like after COVID-19? And yet the CDC is, is putting its authority behind a statement suggesting to the American public, if you've gotten, gotten COVID-19, tested positive, you no longer have symptoms, you don't have to quarantine if, if you've been re-exposed again for the next 90 days is what they basically said. Yeah, and that was that. And so they've been, they become unfortunately politicized as is the FDA in some cases. Uh, and that's what, and we don't need that. 
So one one other thing, I mean, that, that's that's shameful, and it's it's sad because I think you know going back to our earlier part of our conversation when you're talking about buy-in, it, it's just hard to get people to buy in, especially particularly people who are already skeptical of government and politics. It's it, those type of things just create additional confusion, and people say, you know what, I'm just gonna just do whatever because. I, I read this from this credible source, and then I read this credible source, and they said the exact opposite. What am I supposed to do? But one of the things that V's earlier question touched on, I'm going to touch on before we get you out of here too, is that this pandemic is is has taken over kind of the headlines, but there's still a ton of issues that relate to healthcare that are still going on right now that probably aren't getting enough attention. And I know you've spoken on. Uh, two of them, gun control as it relates to health. I would love to hear your perspective on that. And then also climate change's impact on health. And those are things that I think, you know, maybe are conversations that were bubbling up that have kind of gotten drowned out a little bit by this pandemic. Uh, Super consequential. This gun control is, uh, gosh, it's yet another example of individuals without backbone and the fact that we even have to have this conversation um it just is emblematic of 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 the failure of our leadership again people misconstruing and for the wrong reason perverse incentives uh twisting and warping uh, the definition of the uh, of the second amendment the right to bear arms uh, to justify a reality that, uh, or, or uh, to, to push back against a reality that I don't think the founding fathers ever dreamed of. This notion that we would turn guns against ourselves in, uh, in these massacres. There needs to be an assault weapons ban. There needs to be all types of uh, regulations when it comes to uh, you know, taking back uh, arms from individuals that may have purchased them that then uh, you know, ultimately have a diagnosis of uh, some sort of mental health disorder, for example. These these sort of uh, red flag laws here need to be implemented across the country. There should not even be a debate on an assault weapons ban. I have, I have colleagues across the aisle that I work with who's, who justify it to me on the grounds of hunting or sporting. And if that must be the case, if they must use an assault weapon uh, or an assault-like weapon to to sport, then I think there's solutions around that, like what the Chinese do, for example, or what the Indians do, which is if you need to do it, you got to get a you got to get a docs note, you got to get certified in proper safety techniques, and then you know what that weapon is going to get stored at uh, at a third-party facility. It's not going home, right? And that's where we're at. And there's this is not hard. This is actually not difficult, but again, because we have the wrong elected leaders in place, in many cases, people use this as the backbone of a re-election strategy. It's absolute insanity. And then there's, yeah. and because of media, you know, unfortunately, this is, sound bites are what they are. Uh, this gets, this is a glide path for people to get victory and then to, to, to run on this cause and, and, and uh, or you know, to develop some sort of caucus in Congress just specifically aimed on this cause. It's right. nuts. We tolerate and what the, the existing reality on climate change. I'll, I'll quickly say that there's more and more data suggesting uh, in the last two years that air pollution is an independent risk factor for early death and disability. And now there's more rising data suggesting that exposure to air pollution actually upregulates an enzyme in the body that allows COVID-19 to more easily enter lung cells. And so what are we saying? What, what, basically what we're saying here is that communities 
that have been long afflicted by poor air quality. Mm. Happens to be immigrant. I mean, it happens to be rural communities filled with immigrants. It happens to be brown and black communities across the country living in interurban city areas that can't, that don't have enough ventilation. That when they open up the window, they're inhaling actual uh, polluted air. Yeah. That air actually is an immunosuppressive uh, risk. Is an, is an immunosuppressant, and it predisposes to infection or to worsened outcomes with COVID nineteen. So, climate change is, is is rearing its head in so many different ways, but in particular with this pandemic, it's worsening outcomes. One one last question before we ask you a couple quick quick fun things to get you out of here, is that um, I've, I've read that you have recently come on as kind of the chief scientist for Amazon Care, and have previously worked with Apple. Um, just generally in our country, there's a sense of fear that these companies are becoming too big. They're entering too many areas. Mm -hmm. But I kind of see the opposite, right? You've, you've mentioned throughout this conversation that funding is a big issue that we have, and we have a lot of healthcare challenges. In your work with these, these large corporations, what are you seeing and what role do you potentially see a company that's that's as, as big and powerful and as smart as Amazon potentially playing in in helping solve some of these issues? Absolutely. I, you know, that's part of my um, my life right now is part clinical, part public health advocate. Still have an academic role and then I have been helping Amazon on some of their internal COVID response efforts. What I can say from my my few months, of my perspective there is what they are able to do with their reach and resources puts the government to shame. And when used for good, you know, you, we, we all have, we, I, we can all have our opinions on, uh, on private, the private sector world, but I think there has been too much, because of our political debate, there hasn't been enough effective collaboration across sectors. The public private piece here has been devalued because Amazon or Apple or Google, there's this, there's this narrative out there that they're a bad actor. What I've seen on the public sector, public health side, is that these are companies that can move quickly. These are companies that yeah. are doing a lot of good, actually. They're able to, I, I can quickly say that we're, you know, at Amazon, we're funding multiple clinical trials, one of which is on plasma, uh, uh, to, to determine whether or not it's an effective treatment for those who are critically ill COVID-19. Uh, we're looking into multiple different ways to test rapidly uh, for the betterment of the country. And if we can use our logistics muscle to scale testing for school districts and across the country, well, then that's something that uh, we'd be filling a void in because the government hasn't stepped in. So I think it's a broader commentary to say that the private sector, especially in this age where the federal government is so politicized, so ineffective, six months, we don't have a testing strategy that's unified. We need the private sector. And unless we have a leader saying, what's the best of the private sector? What's the best of academia? What's the best of the public sector? Let's bring them all together in the same room for the betterment of the public good. Uh, we're, we're just going to continue to be circling our wagons here. So I, I personally, I've embraced it. Uh, I've, I, and I think that they, from what I've seen, have spent a year in the CDC and on the public sector side solely. Um, I've been astonished by progress and just the ability to effectively act quickly. We have two fun questions before we get you out of here. This has been phenomenal. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. First question is your top five musicians of all time. Oh, gosh. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, I would say uh, in no particular order, you two, 
uh, Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, that's from my Mommy Valley days. <laughs> uh, Radiohead and just because I was listening in the car, I was dropping off my child just now, Puff Daddy. <laughs> the fact that you call him Puff Daddy, you age yourself. You, you, you've you been know, with him for years. You've been, been with him for like 20 oh, yeah. years. You've been <laughs> with him for years. You've been with him for years. <laughs> All right, one more. This this one, I know you have you have a, a solid answer to your top five athletes. Oh, yeah, this is easy. Um, at least number one has... This is before what happened. I can't believe this happened this year. Um, but Kobe Bryant uh, has, has, I actually have this jersey like right next to me, but a lifelong Lakers fan, um, lifelong Kobe fan. And um, gosh, I just can't believe we lost. What, what a terrible year. But um, Right, seriously. Uh, but uh, definitely him at number one for a variety of reasons. But I would say, uh, you know what I, I loved about him was just the sustained excellence, no matter what he did. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. excellent through and through from the beginning, and he's shot for it. And man, what a, what an example of um, to look up to from. And obviously, personal failures, of course. And um, I'm not excusing any of that stuff. And I feel like you have to qualify any comment of praise on Kobe, which right. is the indictment I think of our times. But um, what I would say is, few people across sectors have uh, have reached such excellence. And I mean, mm. what? what Amazing uh, person to look up to from that standpoint. Uh, Jordan, uh, flu game, 97. Hearts not to love that. Uh, man, after those two, uh, since I'm in Seattle right now, I'd have to say uh, Russell Wilson is number yeah. three right now. Um, oof, God, those, those are top three. Um, I'm a Dodgers fan, so Ramon Martinez, I don't know if you guys remember him, but he was the yeah. Dodgers eight in the early 90s. There's always uh, somebody I look up to. and then, you, can, you can say me, man. You can say me. This <laughs> one's uh, air crossover. Uh, I was, <laughs> and then uh, uh, Nick Van Exel. I don't know if you guys remember oh, him. Yes, yeah, yeah, of uh, course. Nick the Quick. Nice. Nick the, God, that guy, man. I just remember growing up watching him all the time. So uh, those are my top five. That team well, is probably the only Lakers team that I really, really enjoy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Dr. Gupta, this is this has been really, really good. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, for us. I mean, we see you everywhere. Like I said, I see you on TV pretty much every, every night. You've been doing an amazing job. You've been a great mouthpiece. I think you, like you said about Sanjay, I think you also bring a calm um, that I think is also necessary during this period of time. And uh, so we just, you know, want to applaud you for what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. And uh, once again, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Yeah. Keep making us proud, man. And next time I'm in Seattle, we're going to have to catch up. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Um, It's a privilege. And um, thank you. Love the Pilot Boys podcast? Support us on Patreon. Supporters can pledge as little as $1. We have some cool perks on there. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash Pilot Boys podcast. Show us some love today. You're listening to the Pilot Boys podcast, episode 43. Time to hit some news and notes. Let's get it. V, what did you think about that interview with uh, Dr. Gupta? Well, obviously, I was, I was looking forward to that interview for quite a quite a while because I think it's important right now for us to trust the opinions of people who actually have learned more than us. Generally, I feel like expertise is something that's getting lost 
the current time that we're in and to have someone as qualified as Dr. Gupta to come and give clarity on even some of our positions and why we take them. I think we take for granted that we have the benefit of knowing a lot of experts, but I hope I hope it, it sheds a lot of light for people and they, they trust the information. How about yourself? Yeah, I thought it was good, man. And, you know, and I think the unfortunate reality is that, you know, some of this analysis can't be separated from uh, the administration, right? And the current yeah. administration. And some people are going to view that as political. Um, and maybe some, it, with certain people's perspective, it is political. But I think with other people's perspective, it's not political. It's just analysis, right? It's just like, listen, this is my perspective on how things have been handled. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter whether I voted for this way or voted that way. I'm not presenting this data to you for from for that yep. reason. I'm just telling you because these are the people that are currently in power. And if uh, a Democrat or somebody else was in power and they handled it this way, I would give that same analysis. And I just wish that more people could actually do that right now. It yep. seems like a lot of conversations, particularly on social media, just seem to be so impacted by how you voted and who you're voting for and what party yep. you align yourself with. So uh, I know there are going to be some people that listen to that and just think that it was just a whole bunch of partisan medicine um but that's not what it was in my opinion at all and you know i think he was he was obviously he knows his stuff this guy's super qualified if people aren't going to listen to him then i don't know who they're going to listen to so yep um so i thought that was good and, and actually it's a, it's a good segue into kind of what's going on with these college campuses across the country and and covid you know you have a bunch of college campuses across the country that have opened um in the last week or two you know, uh, and a ton of them have infections, um, COVID clusters, as they're calling them. They've had to shut down the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, NC State, uh, Michigan State, Notre Dame. Alabama has a ton of cases now. University of Miami, Texas Tech, East Carolina. I mean, these are just off the top of my head. And now you have, you know, let's just talk about the school aspect for a, a second before we get to sports. Now you have these campuses shutting down and you know indefinitely and going to online learning and i guess they're prorating or sending people back some of their housing and stuff like that what's your perspective kind of on on the, the universities uh, across the country and how they've kind of dealt with covid in the last couple of weeks again it goes back to the conversation with dr gupta it's like you need to have stringent guidelines if you're going to start school you're talking about 18 to 22 year old kids we know what 18 to 22 year old kids like to do in their free time. They like to congregate. They like to go to bars. They like to drink. If you're not setting proper guidelines to open up your college campus, then don't open up your college campus. Right. Mm -hmm. And and that's the issue. My issue is not is not with them opening up. Right. It's more to do with the fact that they're opening up randomly as hell. Like it's like if nothing changes, if none of the bars on campus are shut down, if none of the there's no social distancing guidelines or anything like that, these kids are going to act like they're going to act. They're they think they're invincible. That's what everybody thinks at that age. Yeah, I think a couple of things. One is, you know, just for clarity, some of these things you know happen on off campus parties. And theoretically, you can't really control that. And then, you know, they try to create the social distancing uh, in the room and in, in the classrooms with like, you know, each desk six feet apart and all that type of stuff. But let's be honest, man, like we, we all knew how this was going to go. You know, we all knew that the college, you know, college kids are going to congregate. That's what they're going to do. And now they're trying to blame college kids. They're like kicking people out and, and suspending people and doing all this stuff. And not to say that they're, that 
college kids aren't of age to where they can have some level of accountability. They can. But to expect that that's how it's going to go, particularly when even adults across this country can't can't do it and can't social distance. I mean, it's just it's a weird thing to kind of expect that that's how it's going to go and that you you weren't going to have any cases now. Uh, it is another thing entirely if you said, listen, we knew that this is how, how it was going to go. We're going to manage the cases that we have, but we're going to continue on. To me, maybe that's not justified by medicine, but at least makes more sense. But to act like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. Our first week we have all these cases. Now we have to shut down and go online. It's like, come on, man. You wanted that tuition. Let's keep it real. You knew that if you you know, started off saying that you were going to go to online and that was going to be it, that a lot of people were, would not enroll and people would transfer, people would defer. You knew it. So just stop the bullshit. You guys are hustling. And now you're going to try to blame these college kids. I think it's shameful, honestly. Yep. I think that's a good way to move on from this yeah. topic. Yeah. And well, and it's, it's actually a good segue because it, it relates specifically to, you know, college fall sports and college football and the decisions that people have made and, um, you know, like I said, not just are you seeing cases uh, on campuses, but now you're starting to see them on the teams. Um, University of Oklahoma had some, uh, East Carolina, like I said, NC State, uh, Notre Dame. <clears throat> uh, there's another one that just Texas Tech just dropped. Um, you know, and you're, you're going you're gonna to continue seeing that. And, you know, when I was, you know, pretty emphatic and uh, about the fact that nobody was going to be playing college football this fall. This was kind of the analysis that I was making. It was it was pretty clear how this was going to go. It's not it was it's not rocket science. You know, there's going to be a ton of people coming back to campus. People are going to congregate. There are going to be a ton of cases. And then what are you going to do? But interestingly enough, man, the South, you know, and, you know, people have told us, told me this and told us this. And maybe I should have listened more. They seem to not be deterred by this. You know, they'll just shut down and open back up in a week or two and keep it pushing it seems like that's how they're going to try to operate this season what's your kind of perspective on that and what's your perspective on that I guess as it relates to um football being played and the college football being played and, and then not being played in, in the Big Ten I mean it, it goes back to again you know leadership what the guidelines there's no clarity in what people are supposed to do and how they're supposed to handle this at a federal level a local level a state level at a conference level at any level so when you do that in capitalism people are always going to lean toward trying to figure out a way to make their money um and that's just natural you can't necessarily be mad we can get mad at these conferences but it's higher up than them right these decisions are set at the federal and state government level. And they that's the only thing that will force people to follow certain rules and do act certain ways. Otherwise, people are always going to lean toward what they what's going to make them money and what's what they want to do. Right. And that's what yeah. we're seeing in this country more than anything right now is that people don't don't want to hear it. They just want to be life to be back to normal. I understand mm-hmm. the frustration, but it is what it is. And, you know, we, we, we keep going back and forth every week. It seems like I feel like a broken record. We say the same thing about different scenarios. Right. So yeah, it's just frustrating. Yeah. Very frustrating. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and, and looking at just how they're operating, I think you're hundred percent right. I don't think that it means that they quote, I, I just think that, you know, and somebody, people have been saying this, the way the South has kind of been viewing the coronavirus from the beginning and kind of how they've been acting with it, opening things back up and, you know, earlier than other people and whatever, it's, it seems like that's kind of perfectly in line with what's happening with college football down there. And, you know, I guess I, the, the good news 
is that a lot of the kids that that get this are they're not gonna have at least from what we know now are not gonna have major problems who knows if they're gonna spread it to their communities and families and stuff like that but at least for them specifically they won't but i think this narrative um god forbid anything bad happens but i think if something happens and someone does someone does die or some serious thing happens i think that this narrative can change very quickly i think right now it's um partially like okay well look you know people are going to get it let it run through society and this is what it is we'll shut down and try to do our best to control it and we're going to keep moving forward and i think that is the plan um but i think that can change very quickly so um you know we'll see and then as far as the big 10 i think you know part of the big frustration people have with the big 10 is not just that they shut down it's kind of how they did it and when they did it and maybe should have waited. Maybe you could have waited and saw what happened with some of these other conferences and started your season in October. I think that's a legitimate point. Um, but again, I think, unfortunately, because of how this coronavirus thing has raged through the country and then people's different interpretations of even the data itself, it's left a lot of people to make decisions that they are not necessarily equipped to make and that are tough on both sides. And you've seen the fallout from that in many different ways, not just as it relates to football, but even in government and, and states across the country. So, um, I mean, yeah, there's, no, is, yeah. there's no, there's no way to put it other than to say the big 10 has completely failed and how they've handled this scenario. It's not the decision that may be at the heart of the issue. I don't know because they don't communicate properly on what, how they came to their decision. Right. And that doesn't mean writing a letter. That means getting out in front of this thing. You got some of the best medical schools, some of the best epidemiologists. You have academic institutions with ex experts in this field. Put them out here to answer the tough questions from parents, from coaches and, and be together. This thing is a mess. The Big Ten needs to get it together, period. There's no other yeah, way. To and, and, I, and I've told that to you know people inside the conference and people inside some of these programs as well, obviously Ohio State, like, look, you, at some point, you guys are going to have to get this this thing together because all of this carnage that we're seeing and, and fighting and infighting, it looks like the dysfunctional family. And honestly, that's not helpful for the conference down the yep. line. At some point, you're going to have to take a stand, a united stand, and and go to battle with that because other conferences are going to war against the Big Ten right now. I see it, I see it on social media all the time. They're like, oh, you guys don't care about football. They're negative. Even Coach Alford was telling us that on our show last week about the narrative that they're spinning. So at a certain point, Big Ten is going to have to take control, for better or for worse, regardless of what everybody thinks back behind the scenes, and start taking control of this narrative. One, it's not a cancellation. It's a postponement. Two, we're going to play this year. It's just we're not, you know, three, we're doing this for safety or whatever. Whatever it is, you, at some point, they got to get out in front of this thing. You can't just and, ignore everybody. You can't. You can't. And we got to stop the infighting. And speaking of COVID, it seems like the professional leagues are actually doing pretty well, at least NFL, NHL, basketball. Obviously, they have kind of different scenarios, different, totally different setup. They are pros and paid like pros and um, billion-dollar organizations, but they've seemed to manage it uh, pretty well. Yeah, I mean, so far, we, 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 we shall see. So far, the NFL is, seems to be doing pretty well. Um, you know, we'll see how the season plays out. But I think, again, it circles back to if you understand that this virus is out there and you want to play a sport or you want to execute any sort of business activity, 
adjust to the new normal. Don't ignore the normal, adjust to the new normal. And then if things don't work out when you would make the necessary adjustments, at least you can say you did everything in your power. And I think that's where a lot of people's frustrations overall with this country and is right now is that why aren't the people who are tasked and paid to make good decisions and, and, and tell us the rest of us what to do. Why aren't they organized? Why can't they get it together? And why do they leave us kind of just to our own vices, whatever yeah. we want to do? Yeah, that's, it, it's, it's really frustrating. It, it's encouraging though, um, to see some of these leagues kind of have success. Um, you know, and like we talked with Dr. Gupta, it was kind of like, obviously, you know, we're in a very serious scenario, but it is, we do also want to talk about positive things that are happening as well and positive developments that are happening. And um, th that's one of those things that they've, sh they've shown leadership in those, in those institutions and, um, and shown that we can, even if you don't have great leadership from above or from your state or from the federal level, that you can still make good decisions on your own and still figure out ways to control this within your community. And um, that's good. So it starts um, with taking accountability. That's life. So, yeah, and then also acknowledging the problem, right? Yeah, and and just being honest about what it is, right? And uh, and that's how you're able to come up with with proper solutions, you know. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and speaking of the NBA, the playoffs are underway. Um, kind of a lot of different storylines, man. It's the first round. Most of this, I think, the bigger storylines are probably coming out of the West. Um, even though you have some coming out of the East, you have. Paul George, who's, I don't know, and that's not the Paul George that we know. Um, you got the Lakers that were supposed to be in trouble, and now they're, you know, up up, and, uh, you know, Dame Lillard, you know, and C.J. McCollum and that team. What, what are they? What can they be? Uh, and then Luka. <laughs> I mean, gee, like, that dude right there, man, is just, just unbelievable. Um what stands out to you? And maybe there's maybe there are other storylines that I missed, but what, what kind of st stands out to you so far in the NBA playoffs? Multiple things. Obviously, Luca is the biggest individual story in terms mm -hmm. of we're seeing a superstar um, blossom within right in front of us. Um, yeah. It's unfortunate this happens over and over and over again. Like anybody I knew about Luka Doncic when he was 19 years old, I knew this mm -hmm. guy was going to be the truth. But you saw last year, like, there's still this kind of concern about foreign players. Are they going to elevate? Are they going to be great? And right. Luca wasn't the number one pick. He was the number right. two overall pick. Um, that is something that I think we're seeing, like, the NBA analysts are pretty miss a lot, right? Mm -hmm. They said he wasn't athletic enough. They said all these things. But this guy is the truth in every aspect of playing basketball. And the truth is, you know, as Michael Jordan likes to say, what, what was it? The the ceiling is the roof or whatever he said. Yeah, right, right, right. This, this, this guy is the next LeBron, the next great player um, from every aspect of playing basketball and hitting a big, yeah. that's always a turning point when you hit a game winning shot in a big moment, like he did. And yeah, triple quadruple 40 point triple doubles like this dude is making a mockery of of some of the best defense in the nba right now well the um, other thing about other thing about him real quick and then i'll let you jump back in is is that it's not apparent what his exact like 
super fitness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's like, good at everything. Like, yeah. It's not, he doesn't jump through the gym. He's not like, he's fine. Like, he's not like a 50% three point shooter. He's not, you know, he's not like super quick handles. He just has it all though. And, and, and he's just effective and he has a, a tremendous basketball IQ and he has heart. It's uh, I love watching the do play. Yeah. That's, that's great. And then I think uh, the NBA should be, should, 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 be investigated for having the Lakers play on eight twenty four. We knew Kobe <laughs> would deliver that win uh, right. yesterday. Like that wasn't even like a game. All the games have been competitive, but yesterday that was just like yeah. I felt bad for the Trailblazers. There was nothing they could do to win last. Yeah, night. the Lakers were hitting. They were hitting all kinds of shots too. I mean, like they weren't missing. You know, yeah. there's some games like that that just get away from you in sports, and you just know, like within the first ten minutes, that it's a wrap. You know. And then also Donovan Mitchell is somebody we've got to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. That's a guy that was doubted. They they were wondering. Obviously, he had a great rookie year. He was doubted. And obviously, the, all the issues that came up with him and Gobert were a big storyline. But this guy is balling right now. Um, and that and we're seeing a lot of great basketball. Some of these score lines are crazy. It's, it is a little bit easier to play in an empty gym. So I want right. to adjust for that. But the fact that he put up 51 yesterday and Jamal Murray put up – 50 and, and yeah. a close game like that. Nice. And then, then obviously your guy, um, CP3, mm-hmm. delivered a masterpiece performance uh, last night against the Rockets as well. It's funny because you always think that that dude is, is like, it's a, he's older, it's a rap, you know, he's not going to do anything in OKC. I mean, I remember when he went to OKC, everyone was like, who do they have? What I mean, he's definitely going to get traded. There's no way he's going to play for that team. And then look at him. So he, that dude's a warrior, man. You know, no matter what you think about him, he's a warrior, you know. So, and shout out to Kemba, too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, Miami. It's, Remember when we, when we had our Miami just swept. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I, and we had our conversation when we had, um, uh, Maurice Bob and Bleacher Report. And I remember we, we kind of made our predictions. And I, I predicted that Miami would go to the Eastern Conference Finals. We'll see. But I, I like what I'm seeing from them, too. If you're not tuned into the NBA playoffs, you're really, really missing good sports. Don't don't spend all your time upset about what's going on in the other sports. Tune in, watch these games, enjoy the performances, um, and also support these guys with the initiatives and stands they're taking for social justice. For sure, absolutely. Um, one one last thing I want to ask you about just with NBA is Paul George. What's what's going on with him from from your perspective? Playoff is he, in his, is he in his own head? <laughs> they call him Pandemic P. I love Paul George. His game when it's at its prime. Mm-hmm. But just like James Harden, like James Harden disappeared last night. When it keeps happening over and over and over again, you've got to address it and you've got to figure out what's going on, whether it's a sports psychologist, whatever it is. These two guys, this is not what Kawhi orchestrated this trade for as a second player. And then the truth is, if Paul George was playing Paul George basketball, this wouldn't even be a series right now. Um, yeah, and, and that's the thing, too. Like, you know, that's the, the mental aspect. And I think the reason why, you know, guys like Jordan and and Kobe and Bird and those guys, the reason why people, what people underestimate about them or, or or maybe they properly estimate but the things that make them different was just the mental aspect of it they never were scared of any situation yeah. not to say that they always succeeded but they were never scared and they never shrunk and it was never like you know with the exception of things here and there you were never like what are, where did they go they disappeared you know what i mean like those are the 
and the difference between being great and being a superstar yep is that you know and, and so some, some nights your jumper is not going to be there figure out other ways to make it happen you know like absolutely you know you still have to be paul george for this team you Kawhi leonard needs you to be his robin and you need to be robin you're paid to be robin so all those other things and i and i don't like hearing the things that i'm hearing from him in the post game you know i'm not really you know that scoring isn't the primary aspect of my game like score the fucking basketball and and yeah. help your team win stop it yeah. right. <laughs> for real all right let's talk to the nfl real quick a couple actually safeties um big big things happened with safeties earl thomas whose contract was terminated by the ravens apparently his contract conduct detrimental to the team different few incidents have popped up i guess what's your take on that situation and um where he ends up because earl thomas is i mean you know as long as he's healthy he's he's still one of the elite safeties in the game well i mean earl thomas has had a lot of issues this offseason and and this seems to be the cherry on top and i think again one thing that i want to talk about and think about this is a guy that didn't have any issues right and you start wondering when a guy gets longer in the tooth, right, and has been played all these years and taken as much contact as he hit, the impact that that has on people mentally, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, not saying that there is something going on there mentally, but I don't think we should just immediately treat this like this guy's an asshole or something. Right. There could be something deeper here yeah. that's going on, but at the end of the day, the Ravens, this is one of the reasons why they're one of the best organizations in football. There is no player bigger than the team, right? Mm -hmm. And he, his teammates didn't, for whatever reason, the locker room, he lost the support of the locker room. They're moving on. So he's probably going to be with the Cowboys soon. But, <laughs> right, right. You know, I don't know what yeah. your thoughts are on it, but it's just odd to me that a guy like that is behaving like this now. Yeah, same, same thing. I mean, I, I you know, People think a lot of times that I make excuses for people. Uh, and it's not that I make excuses for people, but I, I do care way more about the why than the what, generally. And I've, I've just always been like that. And I always will be like that. That doesn't mean that people shouldn't be accountable for what they do, mm -hmm. um, even if they have a legit why, so to speak. But I do care more about that, especially when you're analyzing it, right? Or if you're going to pass judgment on someone or brand them a certain way. So I agree with you 100%. It just, it just seems odd. But I hope that he gets back on his feet. Because again, at the end of the day, we watch this for mostly for the entertainment value, right? Yep. It's not, yep. we're not necessarily trying to judge people's character, so to speak. And so, um, and he's brings a ton of entertainment to the game from that position. So we'll yep. see, I, w I wish, I wish him well. I've, um, and if he does need help, hopefully he gets the help that he needs. Uh, and then same division, you got Grant Delpit, rookie safety for the Browns towards Achilles. It just, <laughs> it's like, can the Browns just go into a season without, any bullshit like can they just ah oh, it's so annoying it's just so frustrating how yeah. this keeps happening you know yeah it's it's it comes down to how at a certain point you know you realize that a shit storm is always going to be part of the season mm -hmm. and eventually we're going to get the right guys in that organization like jarvis landry um like nick chubb have shown that will get us through this bullshit right and, mm -hmm. and there's always going to be every team deals with adversity it's how you respond to it and yeah. what i think the browns need more than anything is that change in mentality where 
I understand why the fans are the way they are. Like, oh shit, I'm just in. Mm. But as a team in that locker room, you got to be like, no matter what fucking happens this year, this is the season that the Browns are going to turn into a force in the league. And and a lot of pressure is on Baker Mayfield. And so far, he's shown this offseason. I've been very critical of him. So many different ways, he's showing that he is he is starting to step into that leadership. <laughs> And, and that's one thing that I like about <clears throat> watching the Browns. I agree with you. Um, you know, it's it's kind of next man up, and not to minimize the impact Delpit could have had, but that is kind of the the nature of the game. Mm-hmm. And um, but it does seem as though the Browns have a fairly good leadership role, even ODB to a certain degree. Yeah, he's true. Um, he's from a football perspective. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? He's he seems locked in. So you know, I hope COVID doesn't really interrupt the season in a, in, a, in a in a real way because I think that you know, as a Browns fan, it's I'm pretty excited to see what they can what they can do, um, and I do think that if they really do start shift, shifting their focus more to the running toward the running game, feeding Nick Chubb, and then obviously Kareem Hunt, I think, and then you got those guys on the outside plus the tight ends. I mean, this offense could be. We should we should run the ball <laughs> more than 40 times every game, and both those guys should get get a load because you've got two. It's how often do you get two of the most talented backs in the NFL, you know. But it's just crazy when you have ODB and Jarvis and and, and Jaku and Hooper and, you know, on the outside, like, to not use those guys in a real way. But the reality is, and, you know, Eric Metcalf said this to us on our show before, too, give it to Chubb. <laughs> give it to Chubb. You and know? you know what? It's You have to have an identity. Establish mm-hmm. that. And then when you have these type of superstar talents, all of a sudden you're going to get – ODB in single coverage. You're going to get Jarvis Landry in single coverage. Mm-hmm. Cooper with with a poor tight end matchup or a defensive end because they are going to have to respond to that run. So yep. start with the running game. Let everything else build from there. And I think all of these guys, they want the ball, right? But mm-hmm. I think if they're winning, they're all at the point in their career where they haven't won yet, where they're right. willing to make adjustments and, and sacrifice for the greater good. I agree with that. Let's talk about some uh, current events, man. There's a, I guess we'll start with the Jacob Blake situation. And uh, I think by now everybody's kind of seen that um, in Wisconsin, three officers uh, shot a black, another black man in the back seven times. Um, it would look like it was going to, you know, be a murder, but, but luckily uh, Jacob Blake has survived. survived. Uh, it's reported that he would be paralyzed from the waist down and, we're not sure if that's a final diagnosis. Um, you know, this situation is, it's really, really tough because first of all, I've, I've, I've been unable to kind of watch the video, but I've just been able to read tons of commentary on it because it's just the the trauma that, that comes with constantly seeing your fellow citizens um, being harmed this way by people who are paid to serve and protect. And then people who actually look like you um, and then the history uh, that revolves around that, it just, it's just a painful thing that it's hard to describe in words, right? And it's interesting because I think as, you know, I don't wanna say that the, the kind of the protests and the movement behind black lives and all that type of stuff died down, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't as loud as it was maybe two months ago, right? Or especially right after the George Floyd scenario. Um, but there've been actually a number of different incidents since then, but this one I think has reignited the match again, because even, you know, I mean, there's still, still some people who are saying that, Oh, he shouldn't have resisted. And he was a criminal and all this other stuff. And we didn't know what he was reaching for and all that and going in the car for all that. 
But I think for the most part, most like people are like, yo, this is fucked up, you know? And so it's kind of reignited um, kind of that discussion around race and racial justice. And um, it reminds people why they're seeing Black Lives Matter on the NBA basketball courts and um, reminds you that the only issue that we're dealing with in this country is not just the pandemic. Um, but it's just, it's disheartening to see. And I think though the unfortunate reality is that some of these things are actually sparks for change and for people to continue the energy. And without them, sometimes you wonder um, if that spark could, would, would, would be continued on. So I, I don't know what your, what your thoughts were when you saw it or if you did see it or just about it generally, but um, yeah, you know, when there are problems like this, you know, I like to dig deep and research and figure out the why too. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, if we look at our police departments and we're honest about them and the history of our police departments, we're not far removed from slavery. We're one or two generations. Police started as slave patrols, right? And then you have a lot of intergenerational police officers, right? I'm not saying that police officers are, are trained to be racist. I want mm -hmm. to make sure that's clear. Mm -hmm. But there are generational families of white supremacists in police departments throughout this country. That is a fact. This mm -hmm. isn't some, that's just a fact. It's and a fact. You, you can literally just look, go press Google and you'll see it. You know, it's not, it's not even a secret. And we know what these people's goals are, right? And the thing about things often in, in, in countries and people like this, what they do is they used to be able, they used to be able to be overt in how they discriminated in the things that they did. Now they have to be covert. And I think the police department for these groups, not the police departments, again, I'm not saying the whole police department, but these groups mm -hmm. of people who are in these departments need to be eradicated. It's fairly mm -hmm. simple. Right. If you or anyone in your family has ties to white supremacy, either you have to have a higher bar to become a police officer or you just can't because mm -hmm. these things can't keep happening. And then the second part of this is, although, you know, people get lost with this Black Lives Matter thing because then mm -hmm. it becomes a black thing. It's only something that impacts black people. Mm -hmm. The response and the outrage to these things costs everybody. Mm -hmm. Right. And even if you it's not you, if you're not a black American and you look at these scenarios and say, I want my community to be safe, you want a safe police force, you want a police force that's responsible, that executes their job. Well, what if you ever get in a situation where you depend on the judgment of a police officer? We need to trust that. And the fact that we don't trust that means that this is a federal government issue that we need to address through Department of Justice, FBI, get all these quote unquote bad apples out, redefine the laws of what it takes to be a police officer and just fix the fucking problem. It's not hard. Well, I think I think it's it's so in theory, I think it's not hard. I think in practice, it's hard because a lot of the people who actually have the power to do some of these things actually harbor some of the same yeah. ideas. Yeah. And that's just the reality. People can get mad if they want. That's just the truth. And, and yeah. the other, the, the, there's a couple of things that you said that I think are important. One is this isn't just a black lives issue. This is an issue that should affect everybody. Right. If you see somebody who's a group of people, well, any race 
who are being, a, you know, treated a certain way by authority or police, people that we pay. Again, let's remember that we pay them. Yep. Um, that should bother you. And I think that people get too comfortable with injustice happening to other people uh, and not realizing how thin that line is between that happening to someone else and that happening to you, number one. Number two, police shootings and killings are, don't only happen to black people. Yep. They happen to white people as well. They just, just proportionally, they happen to black people two times as much. And there's reasons for that too, which is, like you said, the histories of racism, but then also just not seeing people as human. You know, like you yeah. can't, you, you can't think that there, there are things that have changed and there's been progress and all that type of stuff. I get it. But if this country originated with thinking that people like us were only three fifths of a person, you better believe some of that's been, you better believe some of that's been, been passed we're not far. Let's, let's be honest, we're not far removed. You know, when you look at the course of history, a couple hundred years is not a lot of time. My grandmother, my grandmother-in-law is alive and well and kicking and she's in the, in the, her eighties and her grandparent was a slave. I mean, she's told us, yeah. you know what I mean? Like I talked to her about it, like people that she knows. So don't try to tell me, Oh, it's, you know, Oh yeah, my God, that's so hard in the past. Yeah. So there, so the, um, the reality is that for things to change the, and, and you said this, the, the simple, the, there are simple fixes to some of these things, but, theoretically but in practice they're not because this country is built and rooted on certain things right and one of the things that this country has been able to survive off of is oppression right the yeah. people at the top and it's not just black people being oppressed that's human the people at the top human mm -hmm. history the people at the top oppress the people at the bottom and they keep them down there and that's how they maintain their wealth that's how they maintain their status that's how they maintain their position in society and so these things, I know people want to look at them as random. People want to look at them as isolated incidents, but you're right. These are, these are systemic issues. And I guess the only choice left is you, you do one of two things. And I said this on social media, you either fight whatever way you know how, and literally that can be as much as just speaking about it on social media. If you don't know what else to do or donating to an organization or writing your local congressperson, or you stay silent. And if you stay silent, then you're essentially complicit in this. And then when it comes back around to you, because it will, don't come crying and asking everybody for help and asking everybody to support you when that happens. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's just, it's sad. I pray for him and his family um, individually. And I also just pray that we continue the fight in this country and continue to dismantle some of these systems. And it's going to take a long time, but I do believe that change is happening. I've seen some of it. Um, and we just have to continue to believe that otherwise, um, <clears throat> you know, otherwise we'll give up and that's, and that's not what we need to be doing. So, yep. um, one, one other thing in pop culture before we get out of here, or I guess current events, it's kind of the, the, the Conway drama, Kellyanne Conway, she's resigned from her position. Um, her daughter is once emancipation and she's been speaking about it pretty pretty openly 15 year old daughter and basically saying that she's, you know, this job has devastated her and Kellyanne is basically saying she's <clears throat> resigning to like be with her family. And then the husband is also involved. He's at the Lincoln project. I mean, I don't, is this, is this bigger than family drama? Um, is this representative of something more, you know, how, how, how have you, how have you looked at this situation? Well, I mean, look, the divisiveness is clear. It doesn't matter what side, 
we have a very divisive system right now. And Kellyanne Conway is at the center of that divisiveness, right? And there are going to, there is going to be collateral damage. We're in a social media era. You are a high profile person. Your child and other people are dealing with the fallout of things that you're saying and doing, right? So there is a larger issue Two, two large issues. One, are we okay with this being the representation of our power structure in America, this type of divisiveness, this type of rhetoric that has collateral damage. The daughter is just a, one individual who we know this story. And the second thing is how dangerous is the social media structure in pushing out these narratives and these storylines in creating that? I think those are the things that we need to reconcile with what are our morals? What are our standards? Is it is it no holds barred? Is that what we live in? Is that the society we want? Or are we trying to have a civilized society? I think that is the larger issue at play. Yeah, I think for me, as a parent, right, it kind of, it hits different when you see situations like this, right? Because um, you realize that the consequences of what you do don't aren't just affecting you. Um, but they're also affecting your family and your kids and their lives, right? And people are not just judging you, but they're also judging your kids. And what does that do um, to them and their psyche and their mental health and so on and so forth? And, you know, you have to, people have to ask themselves questions. You know, you, I feel like I see a lot of people in, in the social, in the public eye, um, in government and politics, and also in sports media and, and these pundits and who, you don't really believe that they believe what they're what they're saying, you know, that you could tell that they're kind of just doing it for the job, doing it for the money. Um, and, you know, there's a price that comes with that, you know, and that's one of the things that, you know, you and I talk about a lot and, you know, we pride ourselves in, in, in not selling out. Right. And not necessarily just doing anything for the money um, because there are other collateral consequences to that. And this is just seems like one of those examples of that that's playing out publicly. And, you know, not to say that every family, you know, every family has problems and stuff like that, but this is, but that's to me what it, what it reminds me of is like, you know, I, you can find videos of, of Kellyanne Conway, you know, just bashing Trump, right? You can find them, you can find them saying of her saying terrible things about him. And then, and yep. then now she's lauding him. And, you know, that's, I guess people can say that's just politics, but maybe it is, but, there's a price to be paid for that, you know? Yeah. So, and then she, and, you know, she's, she's finding out the, the hard way. So, you know, we have a lot to reconcile in this country. Um, and everybody individually has a lot to reconcile between, you know, what is it that we're willing to accept for this country? What is it that we're willing to accept for ourselves? Right. And it starts internally. What is it we're willing to accept for our family? What type of energy do we want to put out in society? And I'm not, I'm not saying I always have the best energy or anything like that. My point is that those are constant questions that we need to ask ourselves because ultimately what we do now is going to affect all the generations that come behind us. And uh, that's something that personally I, I, I try to take seriously. So um, mm -hmm. that's, that's pretty much all I have to say about that. Yeah. Um, a couple quick tidbits and then we'll get out of here. Um, Usain Bolt tested positive for COVID after having some type of party, um, which just no seems, party. I think it was a mat, no mass party. It's just, it's just like, what are you guys doing, man? You know, it's, it's, 
it's just frustrating because it's like these are people with these are people with knowledge with understanding you know with with access to information and you're deliberately just kind of being obtuse and it's and then there are consequences for it and then now you're going to have to go to the hospital and use resources and you want probably want sympathy for it and god forbid something terrible this this situation deteriorates it's like it's like assumption of the risk is what we call it in law. Right. And it's just yeah. like, why, 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 you know, why, what, what are you proving by doing this? It's just, it's just frustrating to yeah. see this type of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, about it. yeah. And then, uh, two other things, just, uh, RIPs again, um, Kobe, you know, eight twenty four day just passed and, and then, you know, also his, his birthday just passed. So, um, RIP to Kobe. And then 19 years ago this week, we also lost Aaliyah, you know, who's just a legend who will never die ever. Yeah, literally one in a million. Yeah, one in a million. It's crazy. One in a million, literally. Yeah, crazy. Um, it's, so, it's crazy, but yeah. but her legacy is strong and will live on. And I guess if you are going to pass away, that's kind of how you want it to be. So um, shout out to her. And uh, that's it. That's all we have for news and notes. You listen to the Pilot Boys podcast. Ondo Media here in Columbus has been working with us to keep the Pilot Boys in production during the pandemic, as well as getting our YouTube videos going. It's all about telling your story to your audience. So give John at Ondo Media a shout. You can find all of their media consulting at ondomedia.com. That's all we have for today's show. Big thanks to our guest, Dr. Vin Gupta. Thanks to everybody for listening. Don't forget, sharing is caring. Subscribe to the Pilot Boys podcast on Apple, Spotify, Patreon, and YouTube. And please follow us on social media at Pilot Boys Pod on Twitter and at Pilot Boys Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And follow the hosts on Twitter. I am at Mechanon Music and V is at Viswant. And don't forget to grab some Pilot Boys wristbands and face masks at shop.pilotboys.com. And always remember, be you. You is fly. Pilot Boys out. Pilot Boys, we get on the